We're going to be in chapter 7 of Esther. You know, I've, I've had, uh, pleasantly, I've had a ton of guys uh, tell me how, well, okay, not a ton of guys, maybe one, to, to tell me how much they've enjoyed the study of Esther. Um, I really was kind of uh, reluctant, maybe reticence the right word, about doing Esther because obviously it's an Old Testament book, that's dangerous. Uh, it's an obscure Old Testament book, that's equally dangerous, and then it's about a woman. And that to teach that to a group of guys, you know, am I committing spiritual suicide here? But it's actually been great. And I think, I was thinking about it yesterday. One of the reasons I think the book of Esther is, uh, has been received well is because it's kind of a, a microcosm of our life. Um, it's, it's real in the sense that it's a real story, real people. But I think it portrays exactly what we experience as Christians living in this context. It's, you got the people of God living in a um, foreign land, a secular world surrounded by secular pressures. They've kind of forgotten about God um, in the sense that they still believe in him, but he's kind of not there because they're really not where they're supposed to be. They're not in Jerusalem. They're living in Persia. And to a certain degree, that's a, that's a picture of where we are. We're, we're really not where we're supposed to be. We're, our home is someplace else. We're living in a secular world. We're surrounded by all kinds of pressures. Uh, sometimes we're tempted to um, give in, uh, compromise. And so I think this book really kind of resonates. It does with me, the, the more I study it. And this morning, what's going to be interesting as we study it is... Um, you know, I've, I've titled this, this week's lesson, Divine Payback, which we talked about last week. It's going to get even greater this week. And as I said last week, we love payback. I especially love divine payback. Um, I love seeing God hand it to those who deserve it. Um, but what I'm going to really uh, try to communicate to you today, and hopefully it'll make sense by the time we're done, is be really careful what you do with divine payback. Because divine payback, if you want to put it in um, spiritual terms, biblical terms, is what we would call justice. Justice is a wonderful thing as long as you're not on the receiving end. Okay? And as Christians, as we read this story, and especially as we dig into to what happened to Haman, there's a part of us that wants to cheer and, and say, I like this. He's getting exactly what he deserves. But what I want you to do as we read this morning and as we look at this passage is think about what you deserved. Think about if you had received the justice of God for your sins. But if you're a believer in Christ, you haven't, right? You, you haven't received justice. You've received what? Mercy, grace, forgiveness, eternal life. You didn't deserve it. You didn't get what you deserved, you got what you didn't deserve. You were shown mercy. And so as we read the story of Haman, it's really easy for us to kind of say, give it with both barrels. Let him have it. He deserves it. But I think we're going to see that what's interesting is Mordecai deserved death on a number of, reasons, number of scales. Because he was a sinner, he deserved death at the hands of God. But he also deserved death because he refused to bow down to the second most powerful man in the kingdom. And as a result, in that kingdom, in that 
world, that was a penalty, that was a um, sin worthy of death. And so we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more, but as we study this today, I want us to really think through this idea of justice. We love justice as long as it doesn't hit us. And we love justice when we think about Muslims deserve justice. They deserve to be destroyed. Uh, homosexuals deserve justice. They deserve to be destroyed. Pick your sin, pick your people group, pick, pick the group that you don't like, and just, man, if God would only show justice. But think about what if God had shown you justice? And it'll kind of change things for us. So let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would come this morning, that you would speak to us mightily through this passage. Father, help us to um, concentrate less on Haman and more on you, that you are a God who is holy, you are a God who is just, you are a God who um, does extend his wrath upon those who stand against you, who reject you, and there is divine payback. We see it all throughout scriptures. We know what's coming at the end, but Father, we also praise you, thank you, and stand before you grateful for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness that we didn't deserve. Help us to see the world. Help us to see the Hamans through your eyes and not through ours. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So here's, here's our uh, definition this morning. This is from John Calvin. When we are unjustly wounded by men, let us overlook their wickedness, which would but worsen our pain and sharpen our minds to revenge. Remember to mount up to God and learn to believe for certain that whatever our enemy has wickedly committed against us was permitted and sent by God's just dispensation. Man, I could have gone all day without reading that one, right? When we are unjustly wounded, overlook their wickedness. See, this, this takes providence to a whole new level because, again, we're going to read this story and we're going to want to rejoice in what happens to Haman, but what John Calvin's telling us, and I do think it's biblical, I do think it's right, is that we need to understand that so much of what happens to us in this world, in this context, as believers, as Christians, has come through the hand of God. He's permitted it, he's allowed it, sometimes he's actually sent it in order to perfect us, change us, to accomplish his will for our lives. And that's hard for us to handle. It's hard for us to understand. But again, as we study this this morning, as we finish this book over the next few weeks, we're going to find out that God had a plan much greater than Haman's, much greater than Ahasuerus, much greater than Mordecai, Esther, or any other human being. He had a plan that he was working out. I love this from Stephen Whitmer. He says, we're prone when confronted with spiteful and malicious human enemies to forget God is ultimately behind what's happening to us. See, that's a change in perspective, right? If we have a biblical worldview, if we have a, a, a godly perspective, we will realize that everything that happens to us is orchestrated, handled by, and allowed by God in order to accomplish his will in our life. And we all know just by experience that so much of the things that have happened to us that are perceived negatives, as we get further down the road and look back in hindsight, retrospect, we're able to say, man, God really used that. I didn't enjoy it, wouldn't want to go through it again, but in a kind of weird way, I'm glad I did go through it. 
because it's made me who I am. It's perfected me. Too often, he goes on, the conviction that God is sovereign and that humans fulfill his good plans has virtually no practical impact on the way we live. We suffer from providence and providence amnesia. I love that line. We say we believe that God's providential, that God's in control, that God has plans for our lives, but we somehow forget when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, a struggle, a Haman comes into our life. Um, and there, there's Hamans all around us. We've all had Hamans. Some of them live in our home. Um, some of them we may have married. Um, some of them may be relatives. Some of them may be coworkers, neighbors, friends. Hamans are all around us. And what do we do? How do we handle it? Well, let's read chapter 7. This is a shorter chapter, but it's a, it's a chock-full chapter. And this is on page 87 in your notebook, if you want to read along with me. So, the king and Haman went to a feast with Queen Esther. Remember um, where we left uh, Haman last week? He, he had gone home. He had had to parade Mordecai around the, the streets, um, and he was embarrassed. He was angry. He goes home. He's in mourning. And his wife tells him at the end of chapter 6, you know, well, if he's a Jew, you're a dead man, basically. You're, you're never going to conquer this guy. Then he gets pulled back into the second feast that Esther is holding for the king and Haman. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, which the king was prone to do, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So once again, he offers her this incredible offer. What do you want? Up to half my kingdom. Well, she doesn't jump on it right away. She says in verse three, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted, granted me for my wish and my people for my request. And I think at this point, he's probably going, where's this going? Where's this headed? Remember, he doesn't know she's a Jew. She's hidden it this entire time. For we have been sold and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Here she's kind of, uh, this is very uh, political. This is very um, careful wording on her part because she's basically saying, we, we are basically going to be destroyed. She still hasn't said who she's talking about. She says, we're going to be destroyed. And then she says, you know, I wouldn't have bothered you with this if we were just going to be made slaves because you're too important, you're too busy, but it's the fact that we're all going to be annihilated. That's the problem. That's why I'm bringing it to you. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Now, whose ring signed the edict, sealed the edict that made this possible? The king's. So he's not putting two and two together, which is really kind of interesting. He says, who's responsible for this? And Esther could have said, well, technically you are. But she's smarter than that. And she says, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And I love this line. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Yeah, because Haman 
had gone into the king and had said, and we'll look at it in just a second, he had said, I want to get rid of this people group because they're a threat to your kingdom and I want to kill them, annihilate them. I'll even put 10,000 talents of silver towards the process if you'll just give me permission to put this edict out. And the king says, go for it. And so he didn't tell them he was, it was Jews. And now the king started to put two and two together and he realizes, okay, it's the same people as my wife. And so Haman is the one behind it. Haman is not only tr just trying to destroy these people, he's trying to destroy my queen. And now it's, now it's personal. Well, what happens? The king, verse 7, arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. It took, took a lot to get Haman, I mean, more, got too many names going here. A hazardous to stop wine drinking, you know, because the guy loved to drink. But he's so angry, he gets up, went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. So once again, here's a guy who hated the Jews. He's just realized, oops, she's a Jew. I've just had to parade Mordecai around the streets of Susa. Now the queen has my life in her hands. So he begs for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Really bad timing. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. It, it, this guy's whole world is just cratering. And part of me's like, yes, I love this. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. So what do we do with this? What do we, what do we get out of a passage like this? Because there's a ton packed in here. You know, you, you've, you've basically got Esther appealing to the king. Haman, who had originally showed up that day to beg for the killing of Mordecai and then was forced to parade Mordecai around the streets of Susa on the back of a horse wearing the king's robes pronouncing his honor all throughout Susa, he's now coming into this situation and his world is cratering, cratering around him. Esther's trying to save her people. So you got this incredible scenario going on. And he asks her, what do you want? What, what is it you want? And she basically just says, I, I want to live. And I want all, my, all my, fa my family to live and my people to live because there's something that's been declared against us. She says, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. And this is the first time the king has realized there's a threat against his wife. Now, remember, he, he had to get rid of his first wife, the first queen, Vashti. Now he's got this girl who he really loves and... There's a threat against her life. And I know the screen's flickering, so if you have to rest, turn your attention. I don't want anybody cursing uncontrollably. He's, he's concerned. He's so concerned that he's angry. 
And what she tells him, she goes on and tells him, here's what's gone on. And in a way, what she's telling the king is, you're responsible for this. Because what she says, we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And I don't think the king is so stupid that he doesn't realize, oh, that's the edict. Because that's very familiar wording, and it's the exact wording of the edict. And she's telling him that this edict that you allowed to be written and then you put your rings on to seal it is calling for the destruction of me, my family, and everyone from my race, the Jews, to be destroyed. And this is exactly what it says in the edict, chapter 3. There is a certain people who, the Jews, scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Now, who's speaking? It's Haman. This is when he first came into the king. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. You know what's really interesting about this? And this hit me this week. This is the same logic that's used to justify abortion. It's the same logic. There's a certain people, in this case with abortion, it's the unborn baby, scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples. They do not keep the king's laws. Well, no, because they're infants. But see, what they do is they interfere with the will of the mother the father, they, they cause distress, and they don't bring profit. They don't, it's just a fetus. It's just tissue. They don't profit. So let's just get rid of them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And see, in our society, in our world, in this day, millions upon millions of infants have been killed because of this very logic. And it's going to increase and it's going to get worse if we don't step up, speak up for what we know to be the will of God. Well, he goes on in that same chapter 3, letters were sent as a result of Haman's discussion with the king, sent all over the provinces, 127 different provinces, what? To kill, destroy, annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, on a particular day. And we've already discussed the day that was chosen by Lot, I think driven by the very hand of God, was the day before they celebrated Passover. So all of this is taking place. It's all coming to a head. Now here's Esther, here's Haman, here's Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus wants to know, okay, who's responsible for this? Who's behind this? And he's getting, he's getting angry. He's upset. Who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? And she says, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. And she I think she just points at him. That guy right there. Haman did it. Haman's responsible. And of course, Haman's terrified. He's, he's scared to death because he's already seen the king is angry. What do we know about this king? He's not afraid to take action. He got rid of his wife. He killed the two men who threatened him that Mordecai exposed. He's not afraid to take somebody's life. And it says he was terrified, and that literally means he was troubled in spirit. Yeah. What an, what an understatement. 
He's boiling inside. His world is crashing around him. He is scared to death. The king is angry. The king, he knows the king is going to do something. He's not going to tolerate this because it involves his queen. And he is so scared. And he begs for his life. The king leaves. He's so angry he leaves. He goes out in the garden to cool off. Haman stays. And in an attempt to beg for his life, he throws himself on Esther. And who walks back in? The king. You see the awkwardness of that, right? You know, the king walks in. Now what are you doing? I'm already mad, and now you're attacking my wife. You're going to try to kill my wife right here. And he loses it. And he pronounces judgment. And it just so happens, and this is why this, I love this book, is that he's built a gallows on the advice of his wife and his wise friends to build a gallows 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai. And when the king finds out, oh, there just happens to be a gallows prepared outside Mordecai's house, well, hang him on it. What he prepared for Mordecai, hang him on it. Now, here's what I need you to understand about this. We've said this before, but when we we read the word gallows, we think of westerns and we think of the wooden stand with a place to hang somebody on a rope. That's not what this is. Totally different thing. Here's, Here's two Persian reliefs that show you what it was. They're a little hard to see, but literally it was a spike. And they drove it through your body. And then they hung you. It was obviously painful. It didn't kill you immediately. You usually died over time. You bled out. This was the Persian version of crucifixion. They normally would strip you naked. So it was humiliating. They would parade you through the streets in preparation, they would beat you, they would scourge you, they would do whatever they had to do, and then they would stick you on a spike. This is what he had prepared for who? Mordecai. And now what does he hear from the words of the king? Hang him on it. Turn the tables. Now put him on the spike and put him up 50 cubits high on display. And again, before you get excited and go, man, that's great. I love that. You couldn't happen to a better guy. Think about that. Think about what you deserve. See, in this story, the reality is Mordecai did deserve, even though it's probably not fair in our minds, he did deserve to be punished. What was the punishment for a crime of refusing to bow down to a dignitary? Well, it was death. How? What kind of death? Usually this kind of death. He did deserve to die. What did God do for Mordecai? He put somebody in his place. And I was sharing with a couple of the guys this morning. This just hit me this week. Haman died a substitutionary death for Mordecai. Now, I'm not saying Haman was Christ. But see, who deserved to die on that spike, according to Persian law? Mordecai. Who died on that spike? Haman, he took his place. See, both were guilty, 
Different, different sins, different situations, but one died in the place of the other. That's exactly what's happened to you and I. Jesus Christ took my sins, your sins upon him, and he died in my place and in your place, hung up between heaven and earth for my sins. He substituted himself. Well, Haman didn't do it willingly, but he was a substitute. He died on that gallows. You know, Psalm 37 tells us this, the wicked plot against the godly. They snarl at them in defiance, but the Lord just laughs for he sees their day of judgment coming. The wicked draw their swords and string their bows to kill the poor and the oppressed, to slaughter those who do right, but their swords will stab their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Isn't that a, a description of the very way that Haman died? That spear going up and literally threw his body into his heart as God brings judgment. We shouldn't relish this. We shouldn't rejoice in this. This, this is a scary thing. The judgment of God is a scary thing. And we shouldn't wish it on anybody. Psalm 94, the Lord is my fortress, David says. My God is the mighty rock where I hide. God will turn the sins of evil people back on them. He will destroy them for their sins. The Lord our God will destroy them. See, there is a sense when we think about the world, the evil, the enemies that are out there against us, that we need to leave the judgment of God up to God. We need to leave the wrath of God up to God and not rejoice in it. You know, I'm reading through the life of David right now. And what's really fascinating about the life of David, if you've ever studied it, is that he gets anointed king at a very young age, but he's not told that he's anointed king. He just gets anointed. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know why. He gets chosen over all of his brothers. And then he ends up in the employment of Saul, the king, who he's supposed to replace, but he doesn't know he's replacing him. He becomes a warrior. He becomes his armor bearer. He becomes very successful. And Saul becomes very jealous of David. And he realizes that he's the replacement because the prophet has already told him, God's done with you and he's going to replace you with a man after his own heart. And Saul's smart enough to go, it's probably him. So what does he do over the next years? He tries to eliminate David. He chases him. He sends mercenaries after him. He two times tries to spear him to death with his own spear as David plays his harp trying to calm his spirit. And over the time, David runs, he flees, he goes away, he hides in caves. He's a fugitive. And all the way, you go all the way through 1 Samuel to the very end, chapter 31, and two times he had a chance to kill him, to kill Saul, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And then you go to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and Saul is killed in battle, along with Jonathan and another brother. So basically the, the dynasty is eliminated. And when you read that story, your first impression would be that David rejoices. And David goes, finally, this moron is dead. And I can become the king I was supposed to become. But that is not what happens. What does David do? He mourns. He weeps. He's saddened. Because he realizes that a man of God, even though he didn't live like it, he was a man of God. He was the anointed king of Israel. God did put him on the throne, and now he's gone. He's dead, and he mourned. He didn't rejoice. See, we should never rejoice in the judgment of God on anybody. We should realize that, but for the grace of God, go I. But as I read this story 
This, this story, the entire book of Esther, really is a happy ending story. Everything works out great. They even have a celebration, Purim. And we'll talk about that in the future weeks. But does God always destroy the wicked in our lifetime? Is it true? No. We see lots of wicked people succeed. We see lots of, people, lots of wicked people make lots of money and live comfortable lives and take wonderful vacations and seem to be highly successful. They don't always seem to get payback in our lifetime. And that's what frustrates us, is that we love it when a Haman gets payback because it seems like it's the right thing, and we wonder why everybody doesn't get treated like Haman. Not all the Hamans in your life are going to get what you think they deserve, at least not right now. And that's why we have to leave it up to God. We have to understand that God knows what's going on in the heart of the wicked. He knows what they deserve, and they're going to get what they deserve at the right time. Under God's will, his way, his timing. Psalm 73 tells us, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Have you ever felt like that? You look around the world and you see these people. Maybe it's somebody who lives near you, somebody you work with, and you, you're, you envy them because they just keep prospering. And they don't seem to ever have anything happen to them. They don't get sick. They're healthy. They're strong. They're not plagued with problems like I have. And you get this warped idea that they're getting off scot-free and it drives you crazy. But what do we have to realize? God's in control. God is sovereign. God is providential. See, the book of Esther should not be used as a primer on justice. Well, what happened to Haman has to happen to everybody. And if it doesn't, God must not be active. God must not be here. God must not care. That's not what this story is about. What happened to Haman is a, is a sign of the justice, the wrath of God, but it doesn't always happen the same way every time in every life and every circumstance. We don't, we don't always get a positive outcome. Sometimes the wicked win. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the guy you can't stand who doesn't know God, doesn't have Christ in his heart, doesn't have the Holy Spirit living within in him, he's the one who gets the promotion that you don't get. And you struggle with that. You get angry about that. And you wonder why that happens. The story doesn't always end well. All you have to do is look at the news and you see around the world Christians who love the Lord and who are serving the Lord dying for their faith. And we're seeing it more and more. Being beheaded, being burned losing their jobs, losing their families because they're standing up for the Lord. It doesn't always end the way we think it ought to end. This story has a happy ending, but that's not the way it always is. Sometimes the bad guys aren't the ones who end up on the spike. Sometimes it's the good guys. And we wrestle with that and we struggle with that. See, if you go back and you read the scriptures, here's just a few ideas of how that's true. Abraham never saw the promise fulfilled. God said, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. He never saw that. He never saw his, most of his grandchildren. He never had a home in the land of Canaan. He lived in tents. He never got to see the promise fulfilled. Joseph died where? In Egypt. He never got to go to the promised land. It was his bones that got to the promised land. Moses never entered the promised land. 
The great deliverer never got to go into the land. It didn't end happily for him. John the Baptist got beheaded. Don't you think he was sitting there going, what, what is going on here? He's the one that even when he was in prison, sent his disciples to Jesus to go, is he really the guy? Because this doesn't seem like this should be happening. I'm in prison. And yet he dies in prison, beheaded. Stephen got stoned. That's not exactly a happy ending, right? John was exiled on Patmos. Paul spent most of his life in prison. How about Jesus? He got crucified. Not exactly a happy ending. Oh, wait. Yeah, it really is. Because if he hadn't got crucified, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have eternal life. We wouldn't have forgiveness of sins. We wouldn't have all the things we enjoy. See, God doesn't always work like this in every situation. That's why we have to leave it up to God. And when it comes to his divine justice, Revelation 20 tells us, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. This is a view into the future, guys. This is what we hope in. This is what we believe in. It says, the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. That includes Haman, Mordecai, Esther, Ahasuerus, every person who has ever lived. And the books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There are those like Rob Bell and others who want to say that this doesn't exist. It's a metaphor. Hell's not real. Hell's whatever you make in this life. There is no afterlife. There's, this is real. This is coming. The judgment of God is coming, and it will come on all people. And those who have placed their faith in Christ will be spared the judgment, death, eternal separation, They'll get eternal life with God the Father. But judgment is coming. We just get frustrated waiting for it. We want it to happen now. We demand that God fix everything right now. Fix this country. Fix my marriage. Fix this. Fix that. Fix my kids. We want everything fixed right now. And guess what? God is not obligated to fix everything right now. God will bring judgment. God will do what God needs to do. God is sovereign. God has a plan. And guess what? His plan is not your plan. And I've never had God come to me for advice. I've given it. He's never taken it. God doesn't want, need your advice because he's God. He knows what's best. That's like your three-year-old coming up and giving you advice. You don't need it. You don't want it. You didn't solicit it. You're kind enough to take it and smile and go pat him on the head and you go back and play with your toys. See, God doesn't need my help. I want justice in this lifetime on my terms. I want every wicked person wiped out. I want all the Hamans of the world put up on spikes. But I got to be really careful with that. If God brought justice to every person who didn't know Christ, many of your own family members would die. You may have children who don't yet know Christ. You may have parents who don't yet know Christ. You may have friends, associates who don't yet know Christ. And if you demand justice, guess what? They die. They suffer. They get hung out to dry. We got to be really careful with this thing called justice. 
we got to be careful about divine payback because we love divine payback on everybody else but us. And see, there's a certain part of us that goes, well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm okay. Judge. But see, we forget that, but for the grace of God, go, why? I, I deserve everything I'm calling down on all these people around me who I can't stand and I don't like their ideology. I deserve what I'm calling down on them. Where is the forgiveness? Where is the mercy? Where's the grace? We're to love as we've been loved. We're to show mercy the way we've been shown mercy. I love this in Psalm 103. He, God, does not punish us for all our sins. Man, aren't you glad? See, I, when I was growing up as a kid, because I had a warped view of God, and part of it came from the, the way God was presented to me, um, I really thought God was up in heaven with a list, keeping track of every sin I ever committed, every wrong thought I had, and he was just constantly like this. What a loser. What an imbecile. Why did I ever choose this idiot? He'll never amount to anything. God was perpetually mad at me, disappointed in me, upset with me, ready to punish me. But see, God does not punish us for all our sins. Why? If you're in Christ, because your sins have already been forgiven. He doesn't deal harshly with us as we deserve. See, this was written before Christ even came. God, even to those who are out there who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, he does not punish them for all their sins. He doesn't bring his wrath. See, the last time God did that was when? The flood. When he just said, okay, I'm done. These people are horrendous. And he brought his wrath and he destroyed millions upon millions of people. But see, God is patient. God is kind. God is gracious. Because there are still many who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And God is waiting. He doesn't bring his punishment for all sins. He doesn't deal harshly as we deserve. That applies to us most certainly as Christians. But it also applies to the lost. Again, Revelation 22 says, don't seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. And I think the time is getting closer and closer, guys. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Basically, keep doing what you're doing. Live out the life you're going to live. Be the Haman you've been all these years. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. Let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy. Look. I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is going to deal with sin in the world. God is going to bring justice. But it's not always visible in this lifetime. I don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. I don't know what's going to happen to a Haman. Haman didn't know what was going to happen to him. Mordecai certainly didn't know what was going to ha happen to him. Mordecai was as shocked as anybody to see, first of all, that there was a gallows that he didn't even know about that had his name on it. And now Haman, the guy who built it, is hanging on it in his place as his substitute. We see today, as we look around the world, we think God's delayed, he's deficient, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, he's not, his will is not happening. Guys, nothing could be further from the truth. God's will is perfect, divine, sovereign, preordained, unstoppable. It's going to happen. And we just can't see the future. We don't know how the story ends. Well, we do. We just read several passages from the end of the story. We just forget about it. 
we, we live in the immediacy of today and we forget about tomorrow. See, I've told you before, I think as Christians, here's how you need to live, with your head on a swivel, looking back at the past, where you were, who you were before Christ, what he did for you, with your head also looking to the future, what he's going to do in the future for you. Never forgetting the past of who you once were and what he did for you and what he's going to do in the future for you. All of which was done in spite of you. So before you get all excited about divine justice, just remember what God has done for you. You know, Malachi says this, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Now think about this. Think about what he's saying. You've wearied the Lord with your words. What words? How have we wearied him? You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight. And he's pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? Think about this, just that last line. How oftentimes, whether or not verbally, mentally, and emotionally, you have said to God, where are you? Look at this. Look at him. Look at her. Look at the circumstances. Where's the God of justice? And when you do that, you weary, you just wear God out. When you doubt him, when you question him, when you shake your fist at him and you get in a circumstance and you go, where are you? See, you're basically saying you're not enough. You're not powerful. You're not sovereign. You're not, you're not providential. You're not in control. But my prayer, my hope is as we study the book of Esther, as we continue to study the word of God together over the years, however long God, God delays, we're going to trust God more and more and realize that he's got everything in his hands, including the future. Malachi goes on and says, who will be able to endure it when he comes, the future? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? I'm eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, and who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of, hev of heaven's armies. See, God's going to deal with all this. God's going to deal with every reprobate, every sinner, every person who shook their face and fist in his face. He's going to deal with it. I have to trust that God has a handle on the future. And i got to trust him in the present because of that reality, that God knows what he's doing. So here's your table discussion questions. What injustices in the world or in your own life are you anxious to see God reverse? Why? What's going on in the world that you think that is so unjust, that's so unfair, and why do you want God to correct it? What's the motivation? See, here's, here's what I think about most of us. We read stories about what's going on in the world, and we go, God, that's, that stinks. That's horrible. But because it doesn't impact us personally, we don't really care. But bring it home to roost, and suddenly we care. You know, if somebody's getting threatened for their faith over in Africa or Asia, and we, well, man, I'm glad I don't live in Africa or Asia. But if somebody came to your house and started threatening your family, your kids, suddenly you would care. What's your motivation? How about this? We, we could easily read the story of Esther and rejoice in Haman's death. What's the difference between delighting in the truth that God will eventually establish his justice and delighting in someone's misfortune? Huge difference. And we do it all the time. We, we, we slant the wrong way. Finally, read Romans 9, 22 through 24. What does this passage teach us about how we should view God's justice? So let me pray for you, and then you guys have fun with these questions. Do not get into a fistfight.
Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who took my place on a wooden spike and was held up in ridicule, who had my sins cast upon him, my death sentence cast upon him so that I might live. Lord, I struggle with the idea of justice too often, and I struggle with the idea that there are so many people out there who rub me the wrong way, who seem to stand against you and against your word, and I I end up hating them, and I wish nothing but the worst on them. But Father, would you help me to see them through your eyes? And would you help me to understand that, Father, what I'm wishing on them is the very thing I deserved? And yet you showed me grace, you showed me mercy, undeserved. And I stand here today forgiven of my sins, redeemed, with a future of eternity in your presence. No fear of death, no fear of eternal separation, no fear of judgment. And yet, Father, there are millions upon millions of people who stand all around us, who stand opposed to us, but they need to hear the same message that I got to hear and that many of the men in this room heard. Father, we love you, and we pray that you would bless the time around the tables. Just anoint it in a special way. May your spirit move mightily as we talk and share and discuss. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.